Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Jay Anderson, who's the director and owner of Jay Anderson Property. We have a good chat to Jay about his background in the hotels industry, both from a business analysis point of view and an acquisition point of view. There's some great parallels for property investing that he's learned along that journey as well. He shares some fantastic information about how population data and demographics, yields, days on market, and all the drivers that help you to select a high performing property it's a great chat with jay and i hope you enjoy it here's jay jay anderson thanks for joining for growth no thank you mike for having me having you on ever since i hijacked a luke maroney live uh (laughs) facebook stream um and the day has finally arrived so for people who missed out on that uh who are you and what do you do jay Okay, so my name is Jay Anderson and I own a property buyer's agency called Jay Anderson Property. Um, We specialise, I guess, in acquiring below market value properties in emerging markets right around the country. Um, Very kind of, very research and data focused and we do this in order to align property recommendations and property purchases um, and aligning them to our client's investment strategy and Beautiful. And we're going to pull that to pieces, I hope, over the course of the, the, the next little while. What about some, some dirt on you, Jay? What posters did you have on the bedroom wall growing up? I think it was super yachts and sports cars. Nice. And I've seen a picture of you on some sort of super looking yacht. Is that uh, a passion you've been able to indulge uh, that- in? Yes, yes. Luckily, I get to use it, but I don't have ah, to pay the good. bills on it. That's uh, that. Maybe that needs to be a question we'll draft in as well, because because I'll have some of that. Yeah. Um, what about property though? How did you get started in property, and what was your first investment? So I first entered the property market two thousand and ten. It was right at the kind of peak of the TV shows, like The Block, and I kind of got oh, yeah. caught up in all of that. My wife and I, my fiance, fiance at the time. We bought a uh, run-down two-bedroom apartment in Potts Point. Um, it was in terrible condition. I think when we did the inspection, there was eight people sleeping in it, mattresses all over the floor. Um, we rolled up our sleeves and renovated it ourselves. So it took us 12 months to renovate, which was terrible decision, but a great learning experience. And um, and then I guess the property bug kicked and, and in. And how from there. did you end up with that? Did you did you sort of back to a, a positive investment, or was it sort of just doomed from the beginning? No, it ended up being. You know, I've still got it now, and it's it's been one of our best performing properties in our portfolio. Um, how we came about finding that one was I was looking in all sorts of kind of areas around that um, Potts Point area. Um, I had a good friend of mine who was also buying in that area who bought probably four or five properties at that stage. He'd actually negotiated and tried to close the deal on this property but couldn't get finance last minute. So nice. he said, hey, that's, Jay, uh, you that's have a look That's a uh, pretty prestige postcode yes. you got there as well. So, Jay, talk to us a little bit yep, about your yep. background. You've got a very varied background with some exposure in areas that I think would sit really well for analysing and in, and selecting investment properties. Can you can you run us through a little bit of your past? Yep. So, my, my background's really in the hotels and accommodation sector and how that came about was, um, I guess, I'm third generation in hotels. My grandfather bought his first motel in the 50s and then my dad and my uncle um, got into the industry and um, investing and working in the, in the accommodation industry. I spent nine years of my 
early life living in a hotel um, that my dad was running. Oh, really? So kind of got very uh, yeah hands-on involved in the hotel sector from a very young age. I wonder if that so happens much on. anymore. Maybe like the sort of regional pubs have the publican living there, but um, yeah, yeah, you don't hear about the Hilton sort of family living in the hotels. But then maybe, maybe they do. Yeah. So this was uh, yeah the Hills Lodge at Castle Hill. So we uh, yeah I lived there for nine years. Wow. From the age of two onwards, and um, I remember growing up at the time, I was thinking, you know, all I want to do is just mow the lawn or do normal kid stuff and you know <laughs> i'm changing once I'm changing we moved out and, and putting little shampoo bottles in rooms yeah 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 <laughs> so so from that sort of grounding obviously you learned a little bit about um business which obviously would be your entrepreneurial journey but you sort of moved into the analysis um of of hotels and 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 acquisition as well um I, i'm interested in in how that's kind of got some parallels for you with what you're doing now yeah so that's uh building a uh commercial portfolio f- uh, with my father so our kind of strategy around um acquiring those assets is because of our background and our experience with hotels uh, we look for run down underperforming um motels and hotels in regional towns where we know that there is business in the town just the property itself is uh yeah poorly run so we buy both the business and the freehold um put some managers in um, business processes normally join or affiliate ourselves with a chain turn the business around on sell a lease on the business and then maintain the freehold and just collect nice. the rent and is that a strategy that you apply with property investing as well so you know looking for something or is that just something a little bit more of a specific strategy on the commercial side of things no so yeah with with, with the resi stuff um i always like to find properties that have upside potential and multiple points of upside potential so that might be through renovation land subdivision secondary dwelling future development um opportunities so rather than just kind of being a buy and hold and you're in the hands of the market you've got some opportunities to um manufacture some growth and um improve yield and also gives you yeah multiple points of exit along the way and and let's get to to investing and i want to sort of start with an interesting graphic that you put up the other day which was the the cost of waiting to invest and i think that's a little bit pertinent especially with the sort of tumultuous market that we've got people are wanting to to wait they think it might be a better time to to get in in a couple of years when there's more green shoot can you talk to us about that graphic and and, and about the the cost of waiting yeah so it was basically just breaking down if you did one um investment property worth five hundred thousand dollars at the age of 25 um as opposed to waiting 10 years and buying it at 35 or 45 and 55 but if we look at just the um starting at 25 as opposed to waiting 10 years and starting at 35 that same five hundred thousand dollar property by the time you're 75 there's over a four million dollar difference after you take into the account the um the compounding growth of that additional 10 years in the beginning 
And those numbers are just using an estimated average return at 6%. That's, I mean, the, the, the impact of that time difference is, is incredible. It is, I mean, for some people, that's going to be a, a, a kick up the backside to maybe get involved earlier in life. For a lot of people, they might sort of look at that graphic and think, I'm already 40 or 45 and I've done nothing. Is it, is it, a, is it supposed to be a carrot and stick? Do you see it as a negative or a positive? A bit of both, to be honest. Like, because I'm I'm based in Sydney, and um, I'm finding a lot of millennials uh, are so scared or worried that they've been priced out of Sydney that they've almost made the decision. Well, we're never going to be able to buy. So it was almost to um, spark the conversation about. First of all, people say, "Well, I can't buy a property for five hundred thousand." Well, yes, you can. You just need to look outside of the area that you live in now. So if you look at other markets around the country, um, you know, you can get in at a younger age and and the difference and the impact that has um, in the end in terms of, um, you know, capital growth is huge. And then on the uh, later end of the scale, so at, you know, 45 and 55, that's when, you know, I, I like the thought of maybe more of a commercial um, portfolio or a, a mix of both resi and commercial because, with the commercial, you can get the income from yeah, it straight can we, away. Can you give us a bit of an insight into the commercial stuff? Obviously, you've got plenty of experience there. How, how do you get involved? What, what are the, some of the differences winding and, and what are some of the tips you'd have for people that are wanting to diversify? And, and typically, I like to ask six questions at once and see if you can remember any of them. Um, is it something that we should only be doing after we've purchased a few residential properties? There's obviously, you know, a hundred different ways you can you can do it. Um, my, I guess, uh, cookie cutter strategy, so to speak, would be depending on your age, is to acquire a number of residential properties, get the capital growth out of those, and then sell down a couple and convert it into commercial. Um, the stuff I really like about commercial property, um, you know, th there is higher risks associated with commercial, so it's really about mi risk mit mitigation. The two types of commercial property that I, I really like, um, one is obviously the accommodation sector and the reason for that is if you, if you get a motel in a regional town, yes, it's at a higher price point, but typically they're a 30-year lease, um, which is fantastic. A uh, tenant pays 100% of the outgoings, including your land tax bill. Once a motel lease um, gets down to about 17 years, it becomes very hard for the leaseholder to on-sell the lease. So typically, they'll go back to the landlord and ask for additional yep. option periods to be added back on to bring it back up to a 30-year lease. And also, um, very low vacancy. And the reason for that is if I bought a warehouse and the tenant moves out, I've got an empty yep. warehouse. I can't do anything with it. If, I, if I've got a motel and the tenant yeah, walks yeah, out, right. I've got a motel. I can open the doors yep. the next day and operate like a motel. So, you know, whether it's ourselves jumping and doing that or, or bringing in relief managers or appointing a manager, um, that we can basically acquire the business. Can you talk about potentially getting a couple of resis and uh, and selling them down to jump into commercial. What, what, why, why would we sort of abandon a residential portfolio in favor of, of commercial? Is it, a, is it a mixture of all those things you sort of talked about, you know, the, the security or is it a bit more about the yields and, and capital growth potential? It really depends on the what your, I guess, your overall goals are. What are you actually trying to achieve out of your investment portfolio? So a lot of the time when I ask clients this, um, if they come back and say, well, it's to um, 
generate a passive income at retirement. Okay, okay, well, that, that's great, but what is that number? Let's try and quantify that number. Is, is that a good what, starting what does that point, number you mean? Think? Someone might sort of sit down and go, you know, I, I, 80 grand a year in retirement would be great or 150 or whatever. Is that, is that a good place to start? Definitely, and, that, and that's how um, my wife and I did it a number of years ago. We sat down and said, well, what do we want at retirement? Let's let's actually try and work out that number, and then I reverse engineered it year by year to work out exactly how many properties I need and by when, so we can we can achieve that. So it's very important to have the end game um, identified before you even begin, because you know depending on what that desired outcome is at the end will determine how we go about achieving. You, that. you sort of struck would be successful in anything that that he's done obviously you've had some some good mentors i think it'd be unfair to say that that's the only reason why you're at where you're at there'd be a bit of blood sweat and tears that everyone doesn't sort of see on the on the instagram feed or what have you but i'm i'm, yeah. I'm assuming that you've put yourself in a position where you um could just be investing for yourself there, there was no real need to sort of share the love there what what was the motivation behind starting jay anderson property so when I continued after our first purchase in Potts Point and then we continued buying properties, um, it started off with a family coming up and saying, hey, we see what you're doing. Can, can you help yeah. us do the same? And then it went to friends and then work colleagues and then friends of friends and friends and family of colleagues and just it kind of expanded like that. And it was because property became a full-blown obsession, I guess, for me. And um, I just really, really enjoyed not only doing it for myself but showing people, hey, well, this is what I do. This is how I do it. This is the buyer's agent I was using at the time. This is the, the mortgage broker. This is the order I'm doing it in. These are the markets I'm looking at and the reasons why. This is how I've formulated my own investment strategy, investment plan, and sitting down with them and I guess educating them on, on what I was learning. Um, and then from that, it got to a point where, um, uh, yeah, I, I loved my full-time job at the time, but this was my real passion and this is the first thing I thought about when I woke up, the last thing I was thinking about before I went to bed. It's a, it's a good um, sign. Doing it every spare chance I had, yeah. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna um, yeah turn it's this into a business. Amazing how many businesses have have started like that, and um, yeah, if you can find your passion, then you're you're you'll never work a day in your life, isn't that what they say? Um, yep, it's you mentioned very, very true. Um, strategies a moment ago, and if if you if you do some research on your website, it talks about different strategies you can assist with, like your buy and hold, or negatively geared, positive. Cash development that sort of stuff is is that sort of list of of your um special and tool belt for one of a, a better expression um a result of people coming to you with a strategy that they want to implement or is it more you've sort of developed that to be able to help them based on what their portfolio needs i'm, I'm just kind of interested to people come and say uh, i want to get into flipping or i want to buy high yielding properties what, what are people coming to you with it's funny because most of the time when I line up my first initial face-to-face -face with a client, I feel like they're almost feel like they have to come to the meeting yeah. knowing what they wanted to do. So a lot of times they come in with this thought of, hey, we want to do this strategy and buy in this market. Typically by the end of the meeting, it's a different strategy in a different market. Um, however, the reason we, we do and look at very different strategies is it all depends on the person's goals, their personal circumstances, their age. Uh, do they have an existing portfolio? What are they actually trying to achieve? So 
rather than just having one investment strategy and you know buying in just one market you know it, it is very um it does need to align with those clients i guess personal circumstances their strategy and what they're actually trying to achieve you know you could have two identical people in terms of age location income but they might want very different outcomes so we need to align the strategy um, that's going to help them achieve their own and desired goals. And if you had to sort of define your bread and butter strategy, and I, and I know that it's uh, it's a little bit of a difficult question because I guess it depends what sort of phase you're in, but is there any particular strategy that, that you prefer over others? Are, are you looking for, for big sort of capital growth in the short term? Uh, are you looking to, to get some upside with, with Renaults or uh, are you a buy and hold chap at heart? Yeah, buy and hold at heart, um, buying properties in emerging markets with upside potential. So really looking at that, you know, the local zoning, um, the local master plans, renovation potential, land subdivision, um, the ability to add it now or at a later stage to inject some additional cash flow into the portfolio. Um, so rather than just buying a, let's say, a new house and land package where we're buying it and we're just sitting on it we're in the hands of the market i like to be able to have some control over what's happening with that property and trying to manufacture some some equity out of it and one thing that pricked my ears up that you mentioned earlier was buying below market that myth mythical sort of thing like we hear a lot about um you know off market sales as the as the great way to get properties on the cheap or distressed sales or or public housing auctions or something like that how, how are you buying under market what does that mean to you so about 60% of the properties we're buying at the market at the moment are off-market, and that's either complete off-market or it's what we call a pre-market listing. So that's where an agent might call me and say, Jay, 123 Smith Street's coming online in two weeks' time. Photos haven't been taken yet, but you know, do you want to have a look at it? So if we can try and secure that before the property is listed, you know, a lot of times the, the vendor doesn't have to pay advertising costs, the agent doesn't have to do the open homes or the rest of it. So you, that usually gives us greater negotiating power in terms of you know securing it just below market value and also in areas where we're buying which are in emerging markets you know some of the properties we're buying the previous owner paid the same price or sometimes even more than what we bought bought uh, buy it so the person selling it has owned a property for say 10 years and they think it hasn't performed well they're seeing someone come in and they can give them um you know their money or just below the money they're paid and there isn't a lot of interest in that area at the moment a lot of the times they, they want to yeah. sell it but i'm just interested in in this this off-market sort of stuff so obviously it's yep. great for you and your clients if you can if you can get something um with less competition you're paying under what the market is um but the, the motivation for the seller yeah okay they might not necessarily have to pay advertising costs the agent might not have to do opens but is the agent getting their full fee so they they might be actually incentivized because they, they want to they want to sell it in an open market and 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 is there a level of distress with people that are selling off market or is, is it a privacy sort of thing what what's what's the reason? sometimes there is yeah so you know a lot of the times it might be a seller is selling because of the one of the, one of the four d's so it's debt desperation divorce or distress if they're selling for one of those four reasons um you know a quick seamless stress fee 
free sale is sometimes more important than getting an extra, you know, ten or twenty thousand yeah. dollars. And it relies on the connections that you have with with agents and the profile. Like, is is that exactly. open to, very- to people, or is it really just the people that they they know they can call up and say, you know, I know Jay's probably got four or five people pre-approved, and he's going to be able to pull the trigger on this quick, so I'm not going to mess around with anyone else. Exactly, and it comes down to building those. Um, you know, mutually beneficial relationships with real estate agents. You know, it's a lot more than just picking up the, the phone and saying, hey, do you have any off-market properties? You need to build that relationship with the agents first. And, you know, we've had um, cases only a few months ago where the agent has actually ma- reduced their commission on the sale for the vendor's side to get the deal yeah, done okay. through us because they know it was it's going to be seamless, it's going to be stress-free, it's just going to... It's going to happen. There's no emotion caught up in it. There's no back and forth playing games. It's just going to be a straight, you know, seamless transaction. And I guess if you're developing relationships with real estate agents, a super yacht has to help. (laughs) It does. I haven't pulled that one out yet, but you've given me a great idea, Mike. Oh, it almost makes me want to become a real estate agent just so I can get a go on this thing. Um, Exactly. Let's talk. Um, let's talk location. I know uh, from a macro point of view, you you focus heavily on on population, infrastructure spend, and employment metrics. But can you run us through some of the key elements and how that all sort of fits into when you define something as a, a, an investment grade suburb? Yeah. So the I guess the three high level um, points that we look at is yeah, population growth infrastructure spending and employment, both unemployment rates and new job creation numbers. Once we find an area that meets those three points, then we start having a look at things like diversification of the local economy and overall health of the local economy, consumer sentiment, demand, um, whether there's the current demand or will soon to be demand because the area is going through a stage of gentrification. Improvements, you know, uh, planned, underway, and recently completed, and then getting more down into the property metrics, so vacancy rates, days on market, previous property cycles, renter versus owner-occupier splits, stock on market, income versus debt ratio, rental yields, and and we go through. So that's the kind of data we look at once we're identifying a, a, an investment that, that's, rate area. That works really well from a, from a state by state or maybe even LGA area. But I, I know myself looking at your you know your domains or realestate.com, often some of these suburbs the, there's not enough transactions to paint a real picture. Like how how good is data on say a suburb level for things like population? How far can we drill down? Yeah, you, you can drill down quite a bit, but again, it's it's only looking at the last census yep. data, really. The rest is is kind of estimations. So using that data to identify it on a on a high level, and then once we identify an area like that, I'll go up and I'll spend um, anywhere between kind of four and seven days on the ground, and that's talking to real estate agents, local business owners, town planners, walking the streets. You know, getting the uh, the sights, the smells, the sounds to try and really get a hands-on feel of of what's happening in that area. Go and talk to 
to neighbours. You know, you go to a local cafe and just chat to people about the local market or what's been changing in the area, and that kind of gives you a, a an on the ground, um, hands on feel. How important is that, and, and is that data. something that you would recommend to all investors? I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm imagining you would arouse in uh, an enormous amount of suspicion in some people. Others might just be quite you know friendly. Obviously, if you're talking to real estate agents, they're probably going to be quite open. But is 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 that a good approach for your average investor just to try and do spend a bit of time in that particular area? I think so because, yes, you can see things from a data perspective, but as you would know in the area you grew up in or the area you live, there's there's good streets, there's bad streets, there's good sides of streets, there's little pockets that are you know more desirable to live in than, than others, and data can't really tell you that. So it's important to... Yeah, talk to the locals, get a feel, walk the streets and, you know, then align the information that you're getting. So typically I'll walk around with either a map of the local area and some highlighters and just scribble on it as I'm going around and then aligning that information with um, the data. And so the, in the, the conversations the that you're that having with people, what are some of the key things that, that people say that makes you think that this suburb is, is, is going is to come along? I guess indications that, that, that an area is going through gentrification. So just asking people, you know, how long they've been in the area, have they seen much change um, happen over the last, you know, few few years or recently or planned changes. Um, normally when you're very, I guess, transparent with people and tell them that you're a buyer's agent and you're, you know, looking at all markets around the country for, you know, up-and-coming and areas and you give them some information about the local area that they're all pretty open about it and they might say oh yeah well down there used to be you know some acreage and now it's into this we, we know this local business is expanding or we've got ikea and a new bunnings uh, so that's the kind of local council's got planned and people are usually pretty open about discussing what's happened or happening in the local area yeah. and, fr- and from a data point of view obviously um People moving into an LGA or a suburb is is positive because there's an increase in demand. You've got you've got building approvals, so we don't want sort of too many things being built. Um, we can look at transaction volume. So I'm assuming that you know uh, transaction volumes increase as the property market's heating up. What what are some of the key things that you like to to see that are sort of really going to indicate some green shoots for you? Well, population growth is an interesting one um, because it's not just population growth on its own because we want to exclude any, uh, I guess, retirement havens or single industry towns. So you might have an area that a lot of baby boomers are moving to to retire in and that's the uh, the bulk of the, the population growth. The problem you're going to have there is, yes, whilst from a data level, the population look, growth looks great, but... The people moving in there aren't um, getting jobs. They're not starting businesses. Yep. They're going there to retire. So typically, you'll see that you know the property market will hit a ceiling there, and then they'll go through times where they're struggling to know new jobs are being created, which is an important metric that we need as well. Um, other things that yeah, single industry towns and so mining towns and stuff like that. If you're just looking at population growth on its own, you know you might see big spikes in in an influx of population, but we need to understand, well, what's that population made up of and why are they actually moving and into And you talked an about – sorry, I'll let you finish. So, I was just going to say, so one of the things I love is if you can identify an area where, say, millennials are moving uh, – relocating 
interstate. So say if they're interstate migration from, say, Sydney or Melbourne, chasing, chasing maybe housing affordability, let's say they're going into an LGA in Brisbane and they've got a higher um, median household income than the current population in that suburb, they've got double household income, maybe a higher level of education as well, which sometimes, you know, will indicate that maybe they're going to have a, a higher paying job as well. So that's signs of, well, they're going to move in there. They're, they're earning more money. Um, they're a younger age than the median age in the, in the suburb. And then the onflow of that will be further gentrification. And do you look at things like the days on markets and the vacancy rates and, and that sort of stuff? Is that all part of your due diligence as well? Yeah. So, for, for instance, vacancy rates, uh, 2.5% is kind of my, my threshold. So anything over 2.5% is a bit of um, warning signs for me. So, um, yeah, days on market as well. It's not so much the number of days on market, but the, yep. the move or the trend on days on market. Yep. So, you, you're, you're wanting the days on market to be, I guess, dropping so that there's a little bit demand for housing in that particular area? Correct. And, and how much of that, Correct. I guess, property investors are always wanting to, to find the next sort of boom, the next hot spot. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, get, getting into an area before, before it booms, but most property investors sort of do want to see green shoots, right? There's not a lot of people that have the confidence to jump into something as it's maybe still falling a couple of cent percent or, or right at the bottom. Where, where, where do you sort of sit on, on that side of things? And, and, and do you think that, that people are getting it wrong by not sort of trusting the fundamentals and actually waiting for it to boom to some degree? To be honest, it, it depends on the, on, on the individual person as well. You know, if you're a first-time investor and you're a bit nervous about it all, I think it's you know, probably wise to go into an area that's got the green shoots, um, you know, for, for confirmation that you what you are doing, you've got confirmation yeah. that you are in the right spot. But for someone who's maybe got, you know, two, three, four, five properties, well, that's where you can start trying to jump into these, you know, um, pre-hotspot areas. Yep. For lack of better and term. I'm interested in your golden triangle concept. That's part of your location analysis as well, but it drills a bit deeper than that can you can you run us through that yeah so that's you know so once we go up and walk the streets and get a feel for for the local area looking at you know council zoning um different dwelling types so that might be houses versus apartments where's the higher concentration of owner occupiers and higher income earners in an area um looking at things like walk score so the walkability to local amenities and public transport options and we identify these little little pockets within suburbs where, for us, the actual asset selection is the last piece of the puzzle. Getting the location right, not only on an LGA and suburb level, but in street level as well, is more important than the, the, the final asset, which is almost flipping it on its head because most people, when they're looking to buy a property, they go into realestate.com. Yes, they might have a general idea of the, the area they want to buy in, yeah, but they're scrolling yeah. and, through and looking and at just, photos. And not just the sort of opening photo with the with the price, uh, looking at bedrooms and bathrooms and that sort of stuff. So we're, we're obviously getting a little bit yeah, yeah. ahead of ourselves with that sort of stuff because all of the, the aesthetic stuff makes no difference if we're buying on the wrong side of the street and the area that floods or the crimey bit of a particular suburb, right? Correct, correct. The actual asset is the l least 
uh, has the least amount of effect on, on overall You talked a little bit about the split between owner ox and property investors. Um, it's tempting to just sort of say, what percentage should we look at? But I know it's different depending on the area. But can you give us some guidance as to what we should should look for um, in, in terms of the percentage breakup of owner ox and, and, and what the disadvantages or advantages might be if you've got a high percentage of owner occupiers, say? So on a high high level, so say suburb level, you know something like a seventy thirty split is a nice is a nice split. Um, getting down onto more street level data, it's not so much a rule of thumb percentage, but comparing that to other streets yeah, okay. within that suburb. So if we can find one, two, three streets in a suburb that has a higher concentration of own occupiers than than other areas than other streets. Well, that will typically tell us maybe that there's a, a stronger owner-occupier appeal to live in those streets for whatever reason it may be. It might be um, amenities, it might be size of the block, it might be you know a number of different factors. But if we can buy a property in a street that has higher owner-occupier appeal, well, then typically that's going to be a better performing street as opposed to a street that's got a higher... owner-occupier appeal is important because that's going to be the most important capital growth driver, right? Like, Because if we're talking 80% investors, then the capital growth drivers are a little bit more speculative and the investors drop out, we're only left with 20% of people that actually sort of want to be in in there. Is is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So owner-occupiers, because they've got an emotional... Uh, invested interest in, into a property that's you know really what pushes prices up you know at auctions and, and bidding wars on a property you know once pe- somebody can picture themselves and their family living in a property they're willing to pay more than a, you know, an investor I've been just there myself the you, you throw all your negotiating power <laughs> in the toilet and the wife sort of looking at you yep. you get this you son of a um so what about yourself, Jay? As much as you're happy to share, where are you at with your personal portfolio and, and, and what are your sort of goals about? Is it a, is it a passive income? Is it a retirement? What, what's, what's sort of the plan for yourself? Yeah, so I'm still in the acquisition phase. So yeah, I've uh, invested in both resi and commercial spread across two states. Still in the acquisition phase and I'll probably still be in it for another five years. So I'm 35 now at 40. I'll click over to the uh, consolidation phase where I'll start looking at Going back to the properties I've purchased with development potential and maybe, you know, looking at doing knockdown and some townhouse developments or, you know, adding some secondary dwellings. Um, and then at the towards the end of that consolidation phase, I'll probably look at converting more yep. into a, a commercial that uh, towards the end of that passive income and that's yeah so that's the that's the high yielding stuff where you can own an asset and you're getting what seven eight nine percent return i'm guessing is would be around about the mark yeah so the commercial properties we're buying are kind of between that seven and a half to nine percent you know and that's net yield yeah that's not bad not bad let's talk about your journey so i know you've written that you've made a couple of mistakes along the way obviously pot's point you you learned a little bit uh from it but can you talk to us about some of the things that you haven't got right and the and the and the key takeaways that you've got from them that have have helped you to evolve your strategy as you've continued to invest yeah so i think the the biggest one was once we finished renovating pot's point we got it revalued and i went Wow, that was easy. Look how much money we just made. Let's let's do it again. So I came out of that first one thinking I was an expert, right. thinking, well, 
that was easy. Let's just rinse and repeat. We the spent the next right. nearly yeah, we spent the nearly the next twelve months after our first purchase looking for the next property. And that was attending open for inspections every single weekend for nearly twelve months. And at the end of that we still hadn't bought. So I was walking into properties trying to find a reason why not to buy it rather than looking at the reasons to buy it. So I was looking for the perfect investment. Yep. And at the end of that 12 months, I kind of realized, well, hey, I'm clearly not an expert at that stage and I'm not doing something right. So I need to dedicate as much time and energy as I can into self-education around what it takes to become a, a successful property investor and also to try and get an understanding of what makes a property market tick. So I, you know, spent a lot of time reading books, doing courses, attending seminars and surrounding myself with kind of experts in the industry. So I went out and said, well, who's the best property-focused accountant there is in Sydney? Who's the best property-focused financial planner? Um, and then having a look at what other successful investors were doing and, and talking to them. And a lot of them were using buyer's agents. So I started using buyer's agents. And and then I guess one thing led to another and it became a yeah, full-blown obsession and it's <laughs> still an obsession now. And obviously, you're a buyer's agent now yourself. But d did working with a buyer's agent in the beginning amplify the, the, the outcomes to the positive? Were they, were they just sort of better researched and connected than you could have been yourself? Yeah, both that and, and I learned a lot from them on, I guess, um, how they were doing it as well. And, and almost having somebody outside of the, you know, outside of my wife and I to kind of hold us accountable and helping us pull the trigger as well. You know, I, w I was trying to get things 100% right on every deal, you know, trying to find the right deal. But having someone outside of that to say, hey, well, we're looking at the fundamentals. The, this is the scope that you wanted, and this ticks all the boxes. Let's let's pull the trigger. Yeah. So I was getting caught up in that kind of analysis paralysis um, on kind of property purchase number two, three, four. And as time went on, I, I kind of um, I guessed realized, and you start getting more familiar with the process. And then yeah, so it definitely using a buyer's agent. Definitely, not only I learnt a lot, but it helped me accelerate the process as well. You need a bit of a kick up the bum sometimes as well. Can yep. you talk to us a little bit about the, the market as it is at the moment? Um, we, we sort of see that lending's looking like it's going to loosen up to some degree in the next little while. Um, how do you see the market? Obviously, Sydney and Melbourne are what we normally talk about in real estate when we talk about the market, but in, in a broader sense as well. Yeah, well, touching on Sydney to start off with, it's 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 funny because I think the Sydney market's very spooked. Um, you know, with not only with the tough lending environment we're in, um, the Royal Commission waiting for that paper to be released, um, the talks of if Labor get in and what they do. So I think everyone's very spooked at the moment. Then obviously the the fear mongering in the media about you know the property market crashing and and all the other. Uh, crazy articles that are coming out. Um, you know, Sydney market's in a, in a correction phase and it needed to. Um, but the people that are wanting to buy right now are getting caught up in all of this and wanting well below market value. And a lot of the sellers are being unrealistic and they still want 2017 prices. Mm. So the disparity between buyers and sellers is, is, is huge at the moment. Some of the agents that are doing very well still in, in this market are the ones that are able to, I guess, um, 
educate their vendors about realistic prices from the beginning. You know, you see some of the agents that are still doing quite well, um, but everybody's very spooked at the moment. So I think once the Royal Commission paper comes out, lending starts easing a bit, which, it, you know, the banks need to do. Um, and as we get closer to election and we see what their, you know, policies are going to go in, if they do get in, um, I think um, people will start getting more active in the city market. Yep. And I foresee probably Q3, Q4 next year, um, city property market will start stabilising. Yep, yeah. And what about um, opportunities for investors? So, um, obviously, in Sydney, we might potentially be able to, to snap up a bit of a bargain. A lot of properties are being passed in. Hopefully, uh, people's expectations will meet reality and there'll be a few transactions happen. But what, what sort of areas are you, are you looking for uh, or looking at and, and where do you think the best opportunities for investors are going to be in, in 2019? So I think uh, 2019 to 2021, I think the best performing markets around the country will be Brisbane, um, Adelaide, and I think if the green light happens in Perth, I think um, there could be some fantastic growth in Perth. Yeah, Perth's a tricky one with that sort of mining sort of elephant. Oh, it, it is definitely, and I definitely wouldn't be putting a first-time investor into the Perth market, but I think a more um, seasoned investor that's looking for a bit of diversification and some you know, some opportunity. Yep. I think Perth's going to be a good, you know, it, it is going to turn its corner and it's going to have its heyday. Brisbane is, a, is a, an interesting case study. The, the, the media sort of were talking about Brisbane maybe two, three years ago as as imminently about to boom. It hasn't happened from a data point of view, but there's certainly pockets where you see have done tremendously well. What what sort of things are going to do well in Brisbane? I mean, obviously, um, units off the plan we need to stay away from. But what what sort of what sort of areas and 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 types of property would you be looking at in in Brisbane? So both the the premium owner occupier market and the outskirt, the kind of growth corridors, both to the north and the south yep. of Brisbane. So there's a lot of infrastructure stuff happening, um, population growth that's made up a lot of uh, net interstate migration yeah. as well, and uh, yeah, new jobs are being the created. Sunshine, it always draws people along, doesn't it? Yeah. So if yep. um, people are wanting to get in touch and have a chat with yourself, Jay, to 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 run over some of the things we've we've touched on today, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So either on our website, which is www.janderson.com.au or any of the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, And if Twitter. you can drop us off with, if there's one piece of advice you'd give to a property investor, what would that be? Even if you're going to engage a buyer's agent, I think it's important to understand why they're advising you or telling you to invest in an area and ask lots of questions. You know, I think a lot of people hold back on asking um, professionals or experts questions about, well, why are you saying this area or why are you saying this this asset type or what should we do? Um, I think there's, there's no such thing as a bad question and it's just about getting the confidence and a bit of the, the self-knowledge and self-education around, well, why you're doing it and, and the process. I think that's great advice. There's, there's, people should not be afraid about asking too stupid a question when we're talking about investing hundreds of thousands of dollars into into property. Um, so that's fantastic stuff, Jay. Thank you very much for the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.